Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You'll find On Becoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, send them to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Today we're talking about Michel Foucault, the French philosopher or sociologist who did extensive research into how our society is ordered. One of his works, The Birth of the Clinic, tells the story of how people who were ill became patients. Another is A History of Madness, which examines the concept of sanity and how we separate the sane from the insane. My concern today is Foucault's reflections on how we form communities, what he calls discourses, that are designed to let certain people in and also designed to keep certain people out. I'll be spending this episode focusing on what Foucault says about power and then illustrating that with examples particularly ones that concern religion. Foucault claims that power is knowledge. Power is knowledge. What constitutes knowledge is always determined by someone or some institution that has the power to do so. In an important way, Foucault carries on the Enlightenment tradition of questioning tradition and authority in a way that generally makes them seem oppressive. Of course, power is not necessarily bad. Foucault's point is that it's always present. Or to cite Foucault himself, he says, My point is not that everything is bad, but that everything is dangerous. In other words, power is never simply benign. It can be used for good ways, but it can also be used in in very bad ways. So it's never just neutral. Just as we've seen that we never know objectively, but always within a context, so Foucault points out that we never think or act without power influencing that thinking and acting. Foucault takes it as a given that for any time period, there are ways of thinking that are possible and other ways of thinking that are simply not. He begins the preface of his book, The Order of Things, by mentioning the laughter that he experienced in reading a passage, note that it's a fictional passage, from Jorge Luis Borges. And here's the passage, and I've somewhat abbreviated. A certain Chinese encyclopedia provided the following criteria. Dray dogs. K. Drawn with a very fine camel hair brush. N. That look from a long way off like flies. What this taxonomy makes clear to us is what Foucault terms the stark impossibility of thinking that. I don't think any of us could think that animals are rightly divided according to those particular categories. But of course, where do these constraints on our thinking come from? And what kind of legitimacy do they have? Our patterns of thought and forms of understanding may have more in common with this fictional encyclopedia entry than we realize. Foucault is concerned with exposing the fact that the neat, orderly distinctions made by philosophers and theorists do not hold 
up so well under pressure. Foucault is concerned how we think about things and what forces are at work in causing us to think or act in a particular way. Foucault reminds us that there is no such thing as reason in general. He actually thinks that speaking uh, of reason in general is a kind of dangerous thing. Foucault also doesn't think that there's anything like a human nature, so there isn't anything essential about our ways of being or thinking. Of course, that point may not matter that much, because while different societies may order themselves in different ways, many human needs and desires are utterly universal. Here I don't mean simply to mention that all societies have laws against things like, well, stealing. Uh, why, why stealing? Well, because nobody wants to live in a society in which stealing is acceptable. But we're also talking about you know, the, the society's ideals, its values, the, the kind of way it wants to exist in the future. Now, Foucault's work is intrinsically historical, for he realizes that at any particular historical juncture, our thought and our action are always the products of previous ways of thinking and acting. Whereas Enlightenment thinkers were in search of ways of thinking that are universal and necessary, Foucault asks the exact opposite question, with the clear intention of overturning those Enlightenment thinkers on this subject. He says, it seems to me that the critical question today has to be turned back into a positive one. In what is given to us as universal, necessary, obligatory, what place is occupied by whatever is singular, contingent, and the product of arbitrary constraints? Foucault's method is not that of refutation, but of historical and cultural contextualization. He shows us the ways in which our thought has come about, making it clear that these ways do not follow some ordered grand plan. Thus, his search is not for, as he puts it, formal structures with universal value, but rather an investigation into the myriad ways in which our very thinking, what we take to be normative and rational, is in fact an effect of our history. The contingent ways in which we talk organize, institutionalize, and think about ourselves in ways that we may not be aware of. Thus he wants to provide, and here I'm quoting, an historical investigation into the events that have led us to constitute ourselves and to recognize ourselves as subjects of what we are doing, thinking, saying. One of the most useful strategies in the power struggles is Foucault, is the objectifying and classifying of human beings. We identify people by way of race, country of origin, religious creed, and gender. This promotes the development of models and stereotypes, which are ways by which to view other people. They serve as prejudices, which can serve to help us understand, though often such concepts are so flawed that they end up proving very unhelpful. Now, Foucault is not so naive as to think that there can be anything like a complete removal of prejudice or we could become objectivistic in our thinking or something like that. 
to remove the prejudice of various stereotypes and attempt to view people objectively or without stereotypes is simply to view people with the different prejudice of do not view people by way of stereotypes. Further, to be without anything like categories would make our relation to the world extremely difficult, if not impossible. In the same way that historians cannot do without categories like Renaissance and Enlightenment, no matter how questionable these categories really are, so we cannot view the world or other people or other animals in the world without any sort of categories or even stereotypes. It is true that for Foucault, our nice, neat distinctions serve to make life easier. But he thinks that their use is sometimes more sinister than this. One of the principal reasons we resort to making distinctions is that we find certain distinctions convenient in promoting power. In his essay translated into English as The Discourse on Language, you can find this as an appendix in The Archaeology of Knowledge. Foucault reminds us that there are certain acceptable ways of thinking about things and ways of acting, whereas there are other ways of thinking and acting that are unacceptable given the parameters of what he terms a discourse. Note that a discourse Foucault has broader contours than merely the idea of spoken discourse. While a given conversation between two people or the kind of discussion which goes on, say, in the letters to the editor section of the New Yorker constitutes a discourse, a discourse could also be defined as the way in which the United Auto Workers negotiate with General Motors head honchos, or it could be the way in which Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn interact with themselves and Gentiles. The parameters of a discourse dictate what one says or does not say, where one goes or does not go, what kind of education and activities are appropriate and which ones are not appropriate. And of course, there are many, many other aspects. Foucault rightly criticizes philosophers for either simply missing the boundaries of discourse or for hiding them. He says, it would seem that Western thought has seen to it that discourse be permitted as little as possible between thought and words. It would appear to have ensured that to discourse should appear merely as a certain interjection between speaking and thinking. Philosophers have long assumed that there can be a kind of transparent connection between thought, truth, and language. But that assumption has meant the obscuring of the presence and functioning of discourse. Foucault begins his little text, which is called The Order of Discourse, uh, uh, though translated in English as The Discourse on Language. I'm not sure why. He begins it by reflecting on the boundaries that surround the act of giving a lecture. In this case, it's an inaugural lecture at the Collège de France. It's, in fact, a lecture reflecting on the very act of giving a lecture. There are certain conventions about giving a lecture that must be followed. Foucault bemoans these restrictions by saying, I would really like to have slipped imperceptibly into this lecture. I would have preferred to be enveloped in words. At the moment of speaking, I would like to have a nameless voice long preceding me, leaving me merely to enmesh myself in it. 
Yet what exactly makes something acceptable or unacceptable? Not surprisingly, a discourse arises in a particular historical and cultural context and is marked both by what that context is and by what it is not. Let's consider these in turn. First, discourses define themselves by way of exclusion. Certain things are designated as off-limits, that is, outside the realm of the discourse. The reason for saying that certain things can't be said or done is that, in so doing, discourses establish their boundaries or margins. Foucault sees this operating at least three different ways. So the first one has to do with prohibition. He says, the most obvious and familiar of these concerns what is prohibited. And then to continue that quote, we know perfectly well that we are not free to say just anything, that we cannot simply speak of anything when we like or where we like. Not just anyone, finally, may speak of just anything. In any discourse, some things are simply unacceptable. They cannot be done. Sometimes they cannot even be discussed. These boundaries may be political or theological or sociological or something else. They may reflect a political correctness or the most cherished beliefs and traditions of a community. How one says something, what one says, what one does not say, these are all functions of a discourse. And Foucault says, none may enter into a discourse on a specific subject unless he has satisfied certain conditions. Not all areas of discourse are equally open and penetrable. Some are forbidden territory, while others are virtually open to the winds and stand, without any prior restrictions, open to all. So it all depends on the given discourse and who one happens to be in that discourse. In any case, while discussion may appear to be, quote, a neutral, transparent thing, of course it never is. Professors, for instance, are generally adamant about their academic freedom, often forgetting that at whatever institution they find themselves, that freedom only goes so far. But of course, often these limitations are so obvious, so second nature, so assumed, we don't even stop to note that they exist. We don't think about whether they truly have any validity. Foucault wants to get us to notice such boundaries, which is already a difficult task, and then to ask questions about those boundaries, which, of course, is an even more difficult task. All right, so that's all about um, prohibition. A second exclusionary way of defining the contours of discourse is by way of division and rejection. Both of these are crucial to establishing the boundaries of a discourse by saying, we are not like those kind of people, or we don't say that here. We establish who we are. Our identity comes in establishing what is other to us. Societies have always been involved in separation, the sane from the insane, the sick from the healthy, the normal from the abnormal. The point of making divisions is to promote a particular vision of society, to bring about that which is not, or to keep that which already is the status quo. No society or social group could get along without practicing some sort of division. 
no matter how tolerant a society is, there comes a point at which one has to say they are not part of us or we simply don't allow that. To use the example given by Foucault, the limits of what we consider to be reason or sanity are to a great extent created by whatever we take to count as madness. Thus, madness serves, in effect, as the boundary of reason. Or to put this more strongly, every discourse needs an enemy to define itself. Apart from an enemy, or at least an other, there can be no identity. In an article titled, Supreme Court Seems Ready to Back Web Designer Opposed to Same-Sex Marriage, Adam Liptak writes, The Supreme Court's conservative majority seemed prepared on Monday to rule that a graphic designer in Colorado has a free speech right under the First Amendment to refuse to create websites celebrating same-sex weddings because of her Christian faith despite a state law that forbids discrimination based on sexual orientation. All right, that's the end of the quote. What makes this an interesting case for thinking about division and rejection is that under consideration is not an actual problem, but a potential problem. Lori Smith's lawsuit is designed to prepare a way for her to create a wedding business. This is uh, how... It's quoted in the article, that involves created content on her websites. But she's worried that she might be forced to work with a same-sex couple. Now, again, note that her case has nothing to do with an actual incident. She hasn't actually set up those websites, or so sorry, she hadn't set up those websites before the case began. So her suit is about deciding in advance whether she can rightfully refuse to work with same-sex couples. Justice Neil Gorsuch notes that at issue is whether such speech should be viewed as, quote, expressing the maker's point of view or the couple's point of view. In contrast, Justice Sonia Sotomayor notes that this would be the first time in the court's history were it to rule that a commercial business open to the public, serving the public, that it could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. What's at stake here? A great deal. I assume that Ms. Smith thinks of her community as not intersecting with the community of same-sex couples. As far as she is concerned, they are part of different discourses. But we still have to ask why. The obvious reason is that she, she claims to be an evangelical, and thus she says she's against same-sex marriage. But it's interesting that she has asked for permission to discriminate against gay people who want to get married before even opening a business. Now, another reason she gives is that serving such customers violates her rights to free speech. As it turns out, of course, her state, Colorado, already has a law forbidding discrimination based on sexual orientation. So she is effectively asking the Supreme Court to overturn that law or make an exception or somehow make it possible for her to discriminate. 
You probably remember a baker who refused to make a cake for a same-sex couple. His name was Jack Phillips. He's actually back in the news. That was also brought to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. At stake, though, is the same question. And it's something like this. At what point is someone too far outside or too contrary to the primary discourse of our lives? If the baker and the graphic designer think that same-sex marriage is a bad idea, should they have the right to turn down customers for that reason? The most basic point is that in both cases, people are requested to do something they approve of, make a cake, help in organizing a wedding, for someone who they do not approve. You see the difference? They're requested to do something that they approve, but for someone that they don't approve of. It's not the thing being done, it's the people it's being done for. And that's the discriminatory part. My question is this, why are the baker and potential website designer so against serving homosexuals? I assume their answer will be that such people are living contrary to God's commands. But many people are already doing that, including the baker and the potential wedding website person. Put otherwise, the point is that this particular sin is simply unendurable. Although the language used is often love the person, hate the sin, it's not clear that these things are so easily separated. I worry that hate the sin bleeds very easily over into hate the person. We've already talked about the fact that Christianity has declined in the sense of not as many people attending church, not as many people claiming to adhere to religion, other ways too. Of course, we also noted that the overall values or ideals of Christianity remain part of Western society. But one of the effects of such a decline is fear. Russell Moore, the chief editor of Christianity Today, I quoted from him before, characterizes the past six years as evangelicals becoming both more militant and more apocalyptic. We've already mentioned the following point before, but Moore says, I see much more dismissal of Sermon on the Mount characteristics among some Christians than we would have seen before. There is, I think, nothing more Christian than the ideal of loving one's enemies. In fact, it's one of the few things that really separates Christianity from other worldviews, religions, philosophy. But Moore points out that now the view among many evangelicals is that kindness is weakness. When he talks about mercy, he gets the response, that doesn't work anymore in a cult culture as hostile as this. And it gets worse. Moore points out that evangelicals who find themselves inspired by Jesus' compassion toward others, particularly the biblical trio of the widow, the stranger, and the orphan, have either left or are in the process of leaving evangelicalism behind. His point is that such concerns are no longer acceptable in many parts of evangelicalism. From my own experience, I think that's correct. But we're still left with the problem. Exactly how did that baker think that baking a cake for a gay couple went against his conscience? If his profession is to bake cakes, 
I can't see how making a cake demonstrates or fails to demonstrate support for gay marriage. With a graphic designer, it's a little bit more complicated since that's someone who's working with a couple probably over a period of time. However, Ms. Smith has made it clear that helping a same-sex couple would make her complicit in a sin. I'm not really sure if that reasoning has any basis in it. Um, I have to think about that. On the other hand, it's not too difficult to imagine someone having a principled reason for not wanting to bake a cake for a wide variety of people. Murderers, thieves, adulterers, uh, put in your own hated category here. But of course, neither the baker nor the graphic designer is likely to know anything about those activities, which means that most likely many bakers and graphic designers have already worked for people who are engaged in the illegal activity, and so they are already complicit in sin. There's a further problem here. Might it not be possible that one would think that religion is bad and thereby refuse to bake a cake for someone who is religious? You might not think that being against religion counts as a religious belief, but then, of course, the question would be, why? Not believing in a given religion is a religious decision. It is, at least as far as I see things, entirely possible to imagine someone who finds such fault with evangelicals that he or she refuses to do anything for them. Should that be allowed under the category of free speech? It's hard to see how the baker and graphic designer's refusal is in any way different, since both concern religious truth, which gets us actually to the next point. A third criterion of demarcation that Foucault gives us is that every discourse has a definition for truth and falsity. What Foucault means here is that in a given society, there are established means and methods of determining whether something is true. Something that doesn't conform to those standards is simply branded false. Foucault uses a really interesting example Someone you may have heard of, Gregor Johann Mendel, the famed scientist of heredity. At this point, we can say that Mendel's conclusions were actually true, but at the time he put them forth, they could not have been said to be in the truth. The reason for this is because Mendel did not formulate his conclusions using the appropriate biological language of his day, which he couldn't have done given that the discourse of his time did not have space for the kind of conclusions that he was reaching. And so his research could only be confirmed as true once the biological discourse had changed. While Mendel's conclusions sound obvious to us now, that obviousness is the result of the fact that we are part of a particular sort of discourse in which such ideas are taken to be obvious. But this means that there is no such thing as the true itself. What counts as true is going to be always determined by a discourse which has much to do with power and with legitimizing speech or delegitimizing speech. Here's what Foucault says. The important thing here, I believe, is that truth isn't outside power or lacking in power. 
Contrary to a myth whose history and functions would repay further study, truth isn't the reward of free spirits, the child of protected solitude, nor the privilege of those who've succeeded in liberating themselves. Truth is a thing of this world. Is It is produced only by virtue of multiple forms of constraint, and it induces regular effects of power. Each society has its regime of truth and its general politics of truth. That is, the types of discourse which it accepts and makes function as true. Thus, discourse determine what is true and then relay that truth accordingly. We live in a time in which much of what we take to be true is based on the empiricism of scientific method. For some people, science is really the only thing that gives us truth. In the world of philosophy, this is usually called scientism, the idea that only science gives us truth. But of course, a quick examination of everyday life shows us that we know things in many different ways, and we know many different kinds of things. Science can't tell you if your boyfriend loves you or what you should do with your life. In fact, the kinds of things we most care about are things that science can only talk about indirectly, if that. Well, let's take a different example. Foucault reminds us of the rise of economics as a science. Economics only became a science as markets expanded in the 17th and 18th centuries, along with the rise of the middle class. With the emergence of economics as a discipline, a whole new field of inquiry was opened. States began to use economics, and as the state gave legitimacy to the science of economics, it created a new regime of truth. But this had the interesting effect of placing economics over the state. Whereas states at one time existed for their own sakes, and the state exercised a kind of absolute power over its citizens, today the market has come to have such power that the state now finds it difficult to regulate the market. Foucault likewise suggests a number of ways in which a discourse is controlled internally, both in terms of how the body of knowledge taken to be true in a discourse develops and then how that knowledge gets passed on. There are three groups of rules or notions. Group one includes commentaries and authors which leads immediately to the distinction of primary and secondary texts. Primary texts are those that are central to a discourse. They influence both its current ordering and its future development. Thus, dialogue takes place as mediated and regulated by these original founding texts. It's pretty obvious that the Bible is the founding text for Christianity. Uh, one could say that the Constitution is the founding text for the United States, along with the Declaration of Independence. The interaction with the primary text within a given discourse, though, is commentary. Commentaries can be literal commentaries, in the case of Talmudic commentary, or biblical commentary, or uh, legal commentary, or they can be commentaries in a much less literal sense. For instance, American politics takes as its primary text the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, and secondary te texts are all the debates over the meaning of, say, the Second Amendment of the Constitution. These debates may take the form of a town hall meeting, an op-ed piece in a newspaper, a 
particular decision taken by the Supreme Court or some other thing. Given that commentaries can range from being faithful to texts upon which they comment to being very far removed from them, discourses are constantly in the process of expanding and changing as well as creating new discourses or new possibilities for interpretation. Precisely the non-identity or the difference between the commentary and the text commented upon creates a kind of space which allows for at least some sort of originality. In some cases, the dialogue revolves very strongly around key texts. In other cases, the commentaries come to supplant the primary text and come to be taken as the primary text themselves. In any case, Foucault insists that, quote, whatever the techniques employed, commentary's only role is to say, finally, what has silently been articulated deep down. I don't want to explore this point here, but keep in mind that the ways in which the text known as the Bible have been read has resulted in a wide variety of Christian denominations. Both sides tend to accuse the other of not having read the text carefully enough or charitably enough. But the reality is both sides pick and choose passages of the Bible that they like and find inspiring, and they ignore the parts they don't like. Texts have a particular value and influence in a discourse, depending on who writes them. Of course, the role of which the author's identity plays is highly dependent on the type of discourse, the type of literature we're considering. So, for instance, Foucault gives two examples which have gone in opposite directions. In ages past, it was, and here I'm quoting, indispensable that a scientific text be attributed to an author, for the author was the index of the work's truthfulness. We, of course, today no longer think this way. And Foucault points out that ever since the 17th century, this assumption has been in decline. Instead, what guarantees the truth of a scientific study is the methodology of the study. We assume that, at least in principle, anyone can learn proper scientific methodology, and thus the author's names of a particular study do not count nearly as much as how the study was conducted and whether it was peer-reviewed. Conversely, in literature, and certainly in music, the author's name has historically been left out. This explains why Anonymous is the author of so much literature and music. That, of course, has also changed over the years, which is why Foucault can say, quote, the author's function has become steadily more important. If you're wondering what I'm getting at by that, think about it this way. If we were to discover that a certain piece by Mozart actually wasn't by Mozart, that piece would suddenly drop in perceived value by quite a lot. Even if it sounds like Mozart, if we decide that it's actually not by Mozart, well, then it's not quite as good. A second group of internal factors is particularly connected to the ways in which a discourse controls communication. The first of these factors, ritual, surrounds us at all times and all places. Precisely because of its ubiquity, it's seldom noticed. But we are always involved in ritual behavior, even when we're alone. For the rituals that govern our lives become so much a part of us 
that it's impossible to imagine how we could ever get along without them. Foucault says that ritual lays down gestures to be made, behavior, circumstances, and the whole range of signs that must accompany discourse. Finally, it lays down the supposed or imposed significance of the words used, their effect upon those to whom they are addressed, the limitations of their constraining validity. Rituals function is very significant because rituals tell us what we can do, how we do it, what we can't do, how we should respond to someone, how we should ask questions, all kinds of things like this. Some people describe their church traditions as being liturgical as opposed to non-liturgical. But of course, this designation is highly misleading. All churches have worship, an order of worship, a liturgy, a kind of ritual way of doing things. Similarly, there are ways you act when you attend a baseball game or visit a museum or go over to your grandmother's house on Thanksgiving or sit in a courtroom. This last point comes from my own experience. Once upon a time, I was waiting to hear the fate of a parking ticket. I got off by reading a book by Kierkegaard in a rather large courtroom. At some point, a guard came up to me and sternly told me to put the book away because reading in the courtroom was considered to be disrespectful to the judge. Rituals can be adapted over time, but in many discourses, they remain a kind of constant. Perhaps there's a future in which people meeting one another don't greet each other, but I think that's extremely unlikely. In any case, we would be completely at a loss without rituals. Knowing that this is the way you introduce yourself at a job interview or this is the way you act when you attend a football game is very helpful in navigating the world. Even rules of etiquette are absolutely essential not only to such things as attending a dinner party or sending gifts to people getting married, but to the simplest and most modest activities. Equally important is what Foucault calls fellowships of discourse. Fellowships of discourse preserve and reproduce discourse. One of the most important societies of discourse in many cultures is academia, for it controls what Foucault terms the social appropriation of information by way of education. The educational system is supposedly open to all, but Foucault reminds us that it too follows the well-trodden battle lines of social conflict. Since we've been talking about evangelicalism, it's worth mentioning that evangelicals decided to form their own college system which functions as a society of evangelical discourse. It's also helpful to remember that central to the fundamentalist response was the attempt to remain disconnected from secular, sinful society. So it's no surprise that such groups decided they needed their own colleges. Such groups governed the overarching discourse by way of determining how information within a discourse is passed on, or for that matter, withheld. My own experience teaching at evangelical institutions is they kind of want to have it both ways. On the one hand, the goal is to expose students to the world and get them to think critically. On the other hand, it is often assumed that if figures like Foucault, by the way, not a Christian, um, he was gay, he died of AIDS, and Nietzsche, also not a Christian, at least not in any usual sense, if figures like Foucault and Nietzsche are to be taught, they should be taught so 
as to expose their errors. Interestingly enough, one of my former professors from a different institution, that's a long story, insisted that I should be able to teach Nietzsche to students and guarantee that none of the students would ever want to become Nietzscheans. It would be a very different and considerably worse world if philosophy professors had such magical ability to determine what their students decide to think. The reality is that one teaches and hopes that students get it. It is not part of a professor's job description to make sure all of his or her students think alike, which would be extremely oppressive. My main hope in teaching students is helping them to figure out what they believe to be true. Higher education is only one aspect, though, about how information gets created and passed on. In previous times, one might mention newspapers, radio, television, and other kinds of things for dispensing information. But today, those things are supplemented with podcasts like this one, blogs, websites, tweets, and so many different forms of communicating. And this change has been so broad and deep that Western society is still trying to come to terms with what that technology can do and whether we as a society want to do that, whatever that is. So much so that moderation of content has now become problematic. In many countries, certainly in the United States, the cultural production of knowledge through the university system is hardly open and free. There are certain large universities that are the centers of knowledge legitimation, and their graduates tend to fill the elite positions in American politics and culture. In regard to politics, open and free democracies may actually be among the more deceptive because they promise the whole truth but never really deliver it. A further complication is simply this. While the evangelical charge against higher education being liberal and secular is true, evangelicalism has an entire network to support itself. Christian radio stations, magazines, and of course the mighty Fox News. Now, Foucault points out that in democracies, there might be something like a ritual of disclosure where a public figure like Clinton or Bush or a celebrity goes into public on a news show and delivers something like a confession. In the case of Bush uh, and the war in Iraq, uh, a ritual of sort of candid honesty and openness, though whether in fact it's really open and, and honest is, of course, the problem. We still don't know exactly what George Bush knew before invading Iraq. However much Bush claims to be honest with the public and however much the news media tries to find out what really happened. Foucault's point is that even with events designed to disclose the facts and be candid, much still goes unsaid. I'll be doing an episode on apologies sometime in the future, but for the moment it's worth noting that apologies that don't seem genuine often fail because they aren't candid and honest enough. They skirt around the problem rather than address it, and they usually make it worse. Ultimately, Foucault is concerned with how subjects are formed, rather than with just power itself. We've already noted some of the dividing practices he considers. Yet in his later philosophy, he turns to 
the ways in which we have created our own selves into subjects. Foucault, in his late philosophy, uh, right before he dies, becomes interested in the kinds of disciplinary practices that early philosophers and early Christians used to form themselves. Working from various sorts of models of the creation of a self, Foucault seeks a new economy of power relations. To resist power, we need to put the individual into question and continually ask the question, who are we? Of course, much of this depends on what we believe regarding where that power comes from. There may be power that we don't want to resist, power that we welcome. In any case, Foucault observes that we become subjects in two senses. On the one hand, we become subject to someone else by control and dependence. On the other hand, everyone is, and again I'm quoting, tied to their own identity by a conscience or self-knowledge. Of course, subjects are not formed in some heavy-handed way in which we feel ourselves oppressed. Here's what Foucault says about that. What makes power hold good, what makes it accepted, is simply the fact that it doesn't weigh on us as a force that says no. It also traverses and produces things. It induces pleasure, forms knowledge, produces discourse. It needs to be considered as a productive network which runs through the whole social body, much more than a negative instance whose function is repression. So here we come to this important point, one that's so often misunderstood when people talk about Foucault. Many people read Foucault as suggesting that there is some kind of ugly power play behind all discourses, but this is simply not the, the case. Foucault isn't saying that. We've already seen that he thinks that everything is dangerous. That's not the same as everything being bad. Power can be a very creative force, and it can easily be exercised in a way that produces pleasure and does good things. Needless to say, shoppers who've been highly influenced by the power advertising go quite happily to the mall and spend. They don't feel like they're being oppressed or coerced. Or citizens who believe that their country is the greatest in the world, a belief found particularly among Americans, but I've discovered among others too, are more than happy to support their country. But for Foucault, a subject is not a neutral thing. Subjects are always affected by power and discourse, and this is inescapable. So Foucault wants to show how we become subjects of the government, citizens, rational or rational subjects, or economic subjects. He specifically claims that my objective has been to create a history of the different modes by which, in our culture, human beings are made subjects. So how have we been molded as subjects? That is a major focus of this podcast, which means that the previous podcasts and the ones to come are all attempts to answer this question of how we are shaped and molded, how we become. If you want to know more about this, keep listening. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to Unbecoming.